Today on Blue 58, the 1972 Dolphins can rest easy. The Packers won't be threatening their perfect season any longer. How did this seemingly winnable game get away from the Packers? Blue 58! Hello and welcome to another episode of Blue 58, the one and only podcast at thepowersweep.com. I'm your host, John Meerdink. Happy to be with you here, even if we're talking after a Packers loss. And what a loss it was. The Packers fall late. Well, not so much late as slowly and then all at once to the Philadelphia Eagles. Your final score, 34-27, as Aaron Rodgers' final pass to Marquez Valdez-Scantling is intercepted in the end zone. What happened in this one? Well, the Packers found out what happens when you give an actually good quarterback too many chances. And boy, did they give Carson Wentz chances. Weeks one through three, they had Mitchell Trubisky, who threw up an interception late. They had Kirk Cousin, who threw up an interception late. They had Joe Flacco, who was basically just Joe Flacco throughout the game. This week, though, they get Carson Wentz, and he took advantage of every opportunity the Packers gave him. The Packers gave him three huge opportunities, and the refs gave him one more. We'll talk about that here in just a second. Before we get too far into why actually why this actually happened, I want to take a second because this is going to get forgotten uh, to talk about Devontae Adams' enormous game. He should get all the credit in the world for how he played. Sure, the secondary in Philadelphia was not super great, but he played an outstanding game, and it's a real bummer that he couldn't finish it out. It sounds like he has turf toe, which is extremely painful. And uh, the Packers really could have used him down near the goal line there at the end. Unfortunately, he was unable to go through no fault of his own. Don't don't want to make it sound like uh, I think he should have been trying to gut it out or anything. But man, what an incredible game and what a bummer that it ends up not really counting for much uh, as uh, as the Packers drop one here against the Eagles. Why did this happen? I think there are four plays that really sunk the Packers here, first and foremost. Early in the game, the Packers score to go up 10-0, but then give up a big kick return to set up Philly's first touchdown. So the Packers had been up 10-0, and they'd all but shut Philadelphia down on their first two drives. But then they give up that big kick return. Philadelphia takes over deep in Green Bay territory, and five plays later, it's 10-7. Philadelphia has closed the gap. Then, not long after that, uh, Mason Crosby gives the Eagles another great opportunity to score when he kicks the ball out of bounds. It looked like he was trying to do some sort of directional kick. I don't really know, though. It wasn't close to staying in bounds at all. He sets uh, Philadelphia up with good field position again. They go in for a touchdown. It's 14-13 to at that point, and the Packers never took the lead again. Late in the first half, the third of these significant plays takes place, uh, and the Packers give up a strip sack. The Packers are bad on this play all on their own. It's a bad play in and of itself on what, in all honesty, was a pretty awful drive by the Packers. They take over with 2.45 left in the half. David Bakhtiari starts to drive off with a false start. Uh, Mercedes Lewis catches the ball up the middle. Then they kind of just sit around and wait for the two-minute warning for reasons that are not at all clear. Then on the very next play, a second and six, Aaron Rodgers is strip-sacked, and Philadelphia takes over. They ultimately go down and score, go up 21-13. to 13. On that play where the strip-sack took place, you ended up with Mercedes Lewis, a tight end, who can block fairly well for a tight end, but a tight end nonetheless, blocking a talented pass rusher, Derek Barnett for the Philadelphia Eagles. 
This is the second time in three weeks that the Packers have given up a sack on a play where a tight end was blocking one of the opposing team's better pass rushers. And there was some explanation for why that happened a couple weeks ago against Minnesota when Jimmy Graham ended up blocking Daniil Hunter on a third and six play. I don't care how good the explanations are. That's just something that probably shouldn't be happening. There may be logical reasons for how your blocking scheme gets gets moved around with responding to the defense and stuff like that. But if your if your scheme can get put into a situation where a tight end is blocking a pass rusher on an obvious passing down, your blocking scheme is meshed up. You got to get that sorted out before you even get into that situation. But this is compounded by the fact that the strip sack was performed by Derek Barnett, who should not even have been in the game at that point. And we'll come back to this because I want to close out the show talking about about Derek Barnett. The final of these four plays that I, that I think really cost the Packers is the the non-call on a pretty obvious defensive pass interference on Marquez Valdez-Scantling. So the Packers' first drive of the second half, they're facing a third and eight, and they take a deep shot to Marquez Valdez-Scantling. The ball falls incomplete, but on replay, it looks like there could be pass interference. And after a couple of replays, it becomes very clear that there is pass interference because Marquez Valdez-Scantling was hit in the face by this defender while he was trying to catch the ball. To the point that Mike Pereira, the rules expert that Fox brings in to consistently undermine the officials, says that he would have put this play on the teaching tape of how to call a defensive pass interference. He said it was that clear and obvious that it should be overturned, that the Packers should be given a defensive pass interference call. And yet, the call is not changed. The Packers have to punt. The Eagles go down and score. Four plays that did not go the Packers' way. Four touchdowns on the next drive by the Eagles. That's your ball game right there. And of course, there are other plays. Aaron Rodgers slightly overthrew, uh, overthrew Devontae Adams in the end zone on one play by like, or slightly underthrew, excuse me, by like six inches. Would have been a touchdown. Instead, they kind of peter out in the red zone. Then you've got any throw to Jimmy Graham in the end zone ever, apparently, other than a week one against the Bears. Just, if he can't make those plays in the end zone, why is he on the team? That's what you're paying him for, right? There were a host of other plays that could have broken the Packers' way, but these four seem to really all but take points off the board for the Packers and really give the Eagles great opportunities to put points up of their own. The second reason the Packers lost this game was was the red zone, and we, we talked about it there just, just briefly. A lot of throws inside the five-yard line, a lot of Jimmy Graham not going up and getting those throws. I don't have a lot to say about the red zone stuff because I think it's pretty clearly bad. There doesn't need to be a lot of explanation for why the Packers were bad in the red zone. It seems to be obvious to everyone. But one of my projects over the next week or so, I think is going to be looking at every Packers play on third or fourth down and one yard or less and just creating a a thread or a post of gifts of how bad every one of those plays look. The Packers offense has looked like absolute world beaters at times this year. It looks like it has been absolutely awful at other times. But one place they've been consistently bad is third and short, and fourth and short, especially one yard or less. And that's that's also where this game was won and lost here. Those were some big-time, big-money plays for the Packers that just were not there. Thirdly, I want to talk about pass interference. 
I understand, before we go anywhere with this discussion, that talking about calls that did not go your way is a bad look. It kind of screams sore loser, doesn't it? But it's also dumb, I think, to pretend that refing doesn't affect the outcomes of games. Because it does. It does. We all know that. We all know that refs make mistakes. We all know that refs make mistakes in important spots. And to suggest that you should play so well enough to avoid the refs having any impact on the game is just ludicrous. It's idiotic on its face. You should not even suggest that. There's no team that can play perfect enough to overcome every mistake by the refs. And in a close game, those mistakes become even more important. This idea becomes like inescapably obvious tonight. When pass interference had a huge impact on the game for both teams. There were tons of pass interference calls that had that made big swings on this game. And even the game's final play could have been called the defensive pass interference, but wasn't. And that puts us in an awkward spot. Because I took a screenshot of that final play, and I sent it to my partner in crime, Gary Zillavy, over Facebook Messenger, and he just responded, shrug. And normally, I think I get that response. Normally, you take a last play of the game and just say, well, ends the breaks. Sometimes refs miss calls. Sometimes they don't want to make a call in a crucial situation. But we can't do that anymore. Not with pass interference. The NFL has put itself in a situation with defensive pass interference being reviewable that we're left with nothing to do but pour over these frame-by-frame stills asking whether or not something should or shouldn't have been called. That's how the NFL decided that it wants this to be done because that's what itself they are doing themselves on the actual playing field. You've got refs that are pouring over this stuff. You've got the the league office going through this frame-by-frame trying to decide if something is a pass interference call or not. You can't just move on because the rules now say that you can change a call if you just get a sympathetic ref at the right time. And if it feels like games are coming down to just getting the right ref at the right time, that's an awful place to be for the Packers in this case and for the league in general. I think that's a really bad place for the NFL to have itself. But that's where we are and that's all we're left with. We're left with looking at that last play of Marquez Valdez-Scantling slanting towards the end zone getting a ball right in the chest, bouncing up in the air into the hands of a Philadelphia Eagles defender, but then looking back on replay and finding that, oh, it kind of looks like another Philadelphia Eagles defender had him all but wrapped up before the ball even arrived. Shouldn't that be pass interference? It kind of seems like he didn't have much of a chance to catch that ball. And in a world where that play is reviewable or should be reviewable, that's what we have to do. We have to review those calls. There has to be a ref who comes out on the field and says, yep, we took a look at it. No call. You can't just let it fade into oblivion. Because this is the bed that the NFL has made for itself. What does this game mean? Well, first, I think it means that the Packers got to get this run defense stuff figured out. This is three games in a row now. This has been a problem. It wasn't as big a problem against the Broncos, I think, as we laid out in, in our podcast last week. Uh, the Broncos reeled off some long drives. Yeah, sure. It wasn't like they were gashing the Packers, though. If, if they got a string together, 12, 15 plays to get the ball down the field, fine, whatever. But today, yesterday, whenever you happen to be listening to this, it's actually yesterday when I'm recording this, 
the Eagles were gashing the Packers again and again and again. And it's tough to put a finger on exactly why. I have some theories. One is the Packers trying to go with the this lighter personnel. Their, their hybrid safety uh, linebacker slot puts them in dime a lot, which is a little bit of a lighter front, which means that it's easier to run on you. I think there's probably something to that idea. The The larger point is that the, the lack of run defense really drags down the defense as, the, as a whole. It's hard to get off the field against a good run game. And the Packers have showed that now for a couple weeks in a row. Second, we've learned that this offense can play. Even if the end result wasn't ultimately what we were hoping for, the Packers did move the ball tonight, and they took advantage of mismatches. I saw Ryan Wood bemoaning on Twitter that the Packers' supposed balance was out of whack in this one. They called a bunch of passes, and they didn't call that many runs. But that's actually encouraging to me, because Matt LaFleur didn't try to stick with something that wasn't working, at least into the second half. The Packers were not having any success running the ball, so they just stopped. They stopped running the ball, and they found success through the air. And I think you can feel pretty good about that. You're not going to have situations in most games where you're giving the opposing team short fields as often as the Packers did today. And usually you'd think that the offensive effort they put together, if they can punch in another one of those red zone opportunities, would be about good enough. I mean, say that strip sack doesn't happen. And say the Packers score one of their two red zone opportunities where they got inside the five, that's a Packers win. That's just a couple plays. And if the Packers can be good good enough on offense that just a couple plays going slightly differently changes the outcome of the game entirely, I think you can feel pretty okay about that. What happens next? Well, the Packers have their second mini-buy, first and foremost, so nothing going on on Sunday. Next up, though, Dallas. We play Dallas in Dallas. Uh, Dallas is doing pretty well, if I can say Dallas two or three more times. Dallas, 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 Dallas. The Cowboys. The Dallas Cowboys are doing pretty well so far this year. They are 3-0, and and they are facing the New Orleans Saints in New Orleans on Sunday without Drew Brees. I would expect that the Cowboys probably win this game and come into uh, next week's game against the Cowboys for, or against the Packers, excuse me, 4-0, and and they'll be hosting the Packers for their first significant road game, their first road game of any kind since week one. That's going to be a tough game, especially if the Packers can't stop the run like they've uh, like they've done the last few weeks or they play against the run like they, they have the last few weeks against Ezekiel Elliott and the Dallas Cowboys. Packers got to get uh, get some rest, get their, their stuff back together and uh, right the ship a little bit before they head down to Dallas looking to move to four and one. I feel pretty good about this start for the Packers at three and one. Uh, they're doing all right through their first four games. This was a, a game they could have won, though, and uh, it's hard to to not let that that linger a little bit, even if you feel pretty okay about how the game turned out as a whole. I want to close by talking about Derek Barnett. Usually, I do a few assorted thoughts at the end of of, of the episodes, the recap episodes, and I've got a, a bunch of others. But it's, I think it's going to be hard to follow up this this topic by talking about shoulder pads and and uh, uniforms and stuff like that. The head-to-head shot that Derek Barnett put on Jamal Williams on the Packers' first play of the game has no business in, in football at all. The play was over. There was nothing to be gained by Barnett hitting Williams when he did and how he did. And as a result, Barnett should have been ejected. He should have been thrown out of this game. He should have been ejected for this reason. If the NFL really cares about player safety, 
they need to drop the hammer on these kinds of plays. It was a bad hit, but it was also kind of borderline. It was in a situation where it wasn't like a guy was just reacting to something. It, it was borderline because he had a second to think about it, and he tipped over into the, the decision of, I'm going to hit this guy. And to be fair, there are some situations where a play like that doesn't end with anybody any worse for wear. Jamal Williams just pops up. Derek Barnett, okay, maybe that was a little bit of a cheapie, but uh, everybody's okay. In this situation, though, a guy got hurt. And he got hurt because a guy made a reckless play. He had a situation where he could have pulled off and decided not to. And for that reason, another player got hurt. This is an opportunity for the NFL to fix this situation. And I need to borrow an analogy because I think it's a good one. Uh, from former ESPN radio host Ryan Rossillo. He says, said on a show, I think about a year ago now, that the way to get head-to-head hits out of the NFL is to treat them like Sweden treats drunk driving. Now, our drunk driving laws in the United States are a little bit of a joke. They vary a lot from state to state. The punishments vary How often you can be drunk and caught and not lose your license varies from state to state. It's a bit of a mess. Sweden decided that's not how things were going to be in their country. They decided they didn't want anybody even thinking about driving drunk. And for that reason, they made one significant change that we have yet to adopt in the United States. In the United States, a typical drunk driving offense occurs when you have a blood alcohol content of 0.08. In Sweden, a drunk driving offense occurs when you have a blood alcohol content of 0.02. That's essentially one drink. You cannot drink anything at all and get in your car and drive without fearing that you may lose your license forever. Sweden wants it so that no one is even thinking about drinking and then getting behind the the, the wheel of a car. In the United States, we say, if you've had a couple drinks but think you're still probably okay, you're probably still okay. Because if you don't think you're impaired before you get to 0.08, you're living a little bit of a lie. You shouldn't even be thinking about getting behind the wheel of the car. Sweden wanted it that way, and they've got it that way. The NFL has the opportunity to make it that way with their head-to-head hits. They don't want guys even thinking about making this kind of play. They don't want guys who have an opportunity to pull off, like Derek Barnett did tonight, deciding, you know what, I'm just going to go for it and see what happens. Because he, he might fumble, we might get the ball, who knows. Instead, he goes for that hit, Jamal Williams gets hurt, and the Packers lose a good player. And a guy heads to the hospital. That shouldn't be... That shouldn't be left out of this discussion. Derek Barnett put a guy in the hospital. He should have been out of the game. Instead, it's just Williams that's out of the game. Barnett stays in and is ultimately kind of rewarded for his behavior because not only does he knock Jamal Williams out of this game, but he stays around and has a chance to strip sack Aaron Rodgers and change the game for both teams. That's a little crummy. And I think it's something that's an easy fix for the NFL. And we all know that they're absolutely not going to do it. They're not going to take that opportunity. So I've got for you on this episode, a bit of a downer to finish. But this game was a bit of a downer too. So I don't think that's entirely off base. You can look for us to be back 
uh, with you on Monday for our regularly scheduled show. It will not be a recap show. We're going to talk a little bit about how the rookies on the Packers roster have done through their first four game and check in on some of the, the stats that we track behind the scenes here at the Power Sweep. If you like this show, you want to hear more, the best way to support us is to leave us a review and a rating on whatever podcast app you use. It does help more people find the show. If you want to take your support to the next level, head to patreon.com slash thepowersweep. Donating a dollar per month there helps offset some of our costs. If you want to look good while you support the show, the best way to do that is to click the shop link at thepowersweep.com and head over to our Teespring store to check out some of our fine t-shirt and sweatshirt offerings. They're all very comfortable, very high quality stuff. If you don't want to do any of those things, consider dropping us a question, leaving a comment on something that we put up on Facebook, on Twitter, wherever, uh, wherever you happen to come across it. Because doing that will help us further our mission of helping everybody become smarter Packers fans. And as I always say, smarter Packers fans are better Packers fans, and better Packers fans are what we all want to be. I'm your host, John Meerdink. We'll see you next time on Blue 58.